Today on Ag News Daily. Very certainly there are some logistical challenges, but again, when you get right down to it, the issue at hand is the fact that really no other similarly situated worker that we can identify in the state is required to undergo a COVID-19 test. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. It is a Friday indeed. Delaney Howell here joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, this is your last podcast before you head back to school. I know I am a little bit sad. I don't want to start school just yet. I did say in our newsletter that I was excited, but I don't want to start school just yet. It's been like a six month long summer. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, I guess it might be a little bad that I don't want to start just yet. But I am excited to get back into the routine and it is my last semester of undergrad. So hopefully lots of exciting things to come if we get back to some kind of normalcy here soon. Absolutely. That last semester is always, it seems like that was probably my favorite semester of college. You're heading out into the real world. So I know I'm a little bit scared, but I mean, it'll, it'll all be fine. I'm going back to grad school. So I'm not going to worry just yet. No, you have, you can put that off a little bit longer, but speaking of worrying, We are seeing some folks, specifically ag groups, worried about Mexico retaliating against the United States because of tariffs. In 2018, of course, we put steel and aluminum tariffs on Mexico. They retaliated with their own tariffs on U.S. cheese, pork, apples, and potatoes. And now some U.S. farm groups are warning the Trump administration against putting tariffs on again because they have been, of course, threatening to do that to Mexico. And ag groups are worried that if Mexico does retaliate, it will be this time on shipments of fruits and vegetables. Southeastern farmers and political leaders from that part of the country are demanding and sent a demand letter to President Trump asking him not to and to conduct investigations about it and eventually hit Mexico Um, They want the Trump administration to conduct investigations and eventually hit Mexico with tariffs on blueberries, strawberries, lettuce, asparagus, and other specialty crops. So some folks are saying hit them with tariffs. Other parts of the country are saying this is going to be very bad for our trade system. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag here for agriculture. You know, Delaney, I was looking at at that as well. And I thought it was pretty interesting. And we talked to Farmers for Free Trade co-founder Brian Keel a couple of weeks ago. And he said that the U.S., if the U.S. implements seasonality protect, protectionism, there will be retaliation. And he said that he thinks that instead the U.S. should enforce existing trade agreements and support and strive to help all American farmers with a bilateral resolution. So I thought it was pretty interesting. I read up a little bit on it myself today, but uh, we'll see what exactly happens since there's kind of a uh, push from both sides, I guess. There certainly is, Ashton. But what other news are you watching today? Well, I've been following along with the Brazilian indigenous tribe that has been protesting and they lift the, lifted the blockade of a key grains export road, I believe 
yesterday or today, I can't recall, but members of the Kayapo Indigenous Tribe lifted that blockade on the fifth day of protests after the state government of Para agreed to talk and hear their demands. And uh, they started on Monday, so I guess it did it did lift today, earlier today. And there were truck lines stretching 30 kilometers in both directions as a result of that protest. And that's about 19 miles both ways. And they were blocking the BR-163 highway. And that highway, from my understanding, links towns in the nation's biggest farm state to a port. And so it's pretty Mm. important. With soy season almost over, the main grain that's being transported on that road right now is corn. And the tribe says that the federal government has failed to protect them from the coronavirus pandemic that has killed four of their elders. So that's basically why they were protesting. But now that they are both agreeing to discuss the needs of the indigenous tribe, they have lifted that blockade. And so hopefully those exports can uh, go back to normal and that indigenous tribe gets their voice heard. Yeah, that is that port you're talking about. There is a big one. And Brazil just doesn't have quite the infrastructure we do here in the United States to be able to have decent roadways to transport grains to their ports. So it's definitely a concern for them. It's been a been a concern here for quite some time with political unrest down there with strikes. Now it sounds like some indigenous folks are upset by that. So yeah, it sounds like there's a lot going down in Brazil, going on down in Brazil that needs to be addressed, including a push for a better ethanol deal with Brazil. U.S. and Brazilian Brazilian negotiators are still working on a trade dispute, a long-standing trade dispute over ethanol. And U.S. lawmakers have been weighing in to press for some sort of resolution with Brazil that would eliminate Brazilian tariffs on U.S. ethanol coming into their country. They said, Brazil's inequitable treatment of U.S. ethanol creates economic strain throughout the U.S. ethanol industry, especially during a year in which COVID-19 is devastating fuel demand in our country. This was written in a letter that was signed by 20 different Republican and Democratic lawmakers sent to U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer on Thursday. And so the United States continues to provide ethanol imports from Brazil virtually tariff-free to the U.S. market. And on the flip side of that, Brazil is maintaining a 20% tariff on U.S. ethanol. So Brazil's flooding our markets on one hand and slapping tariffs on our ethanol on the other hand. So they are continuing to push that. Lawmakers are continuing to push that that needs to be a priority for the trade representative's office moving forward. Well, I just have one more bit of news here, and it's just a a small update coming from China. The U.S. chief ag negotiator, Greg Dowd, said that, that while reports of tension between the U.S. and China dominate the headlines, the agricultural relationship between the two countries is strong. And he was quoted as saying, we have made enormous changes in our trading relationship with China and agriculture as a result of the phase one agreement. There is a great ability to talk through things now and work things out that we've never had with China before. 
Dowd says he is in contact with his Chinese counterpart on a regular basis. And he said that if not every day, several times a week, the dialogue and the report is very good. And Dowd spoke during a webinar hosted by Nebraska Congressman Adrian Smith. So I guess we are seeing some of those conversations being pushed through with China about phase one trade deal. Not too much of an update about whether or not they are going to continue to or not continue, but start those conversations up once again. But uh, Greg Dow did give a little bit of reassurance that the agricultural talk is is a go. Well, that is some good news. I wanted to update our listeners. Of course, the Pro Farmer Crop Tour has ended, and it we're going to have uh, Ted Seifert on the podcast on Monday. He was, of course, part of that tour, if you're following along on Twitter, but he'll be discussing what they saw in the field. But as far as what they saw in the field, Iowa's corn yield estimates did come in lower than 2019 estimates, but still pretty high considering all the damage we saw across the central portion of the state. Those scouts that were out there in the fields estimated the average corn yield in Iowa at a 177.8 bushels per acre compared to 2019, which is which was at a 182. So a little lower, but you know, only about five bushels lower compared to 2019. They also estimated that soybeans were looking pretty healthy across the state and pegged those three by three foot square pods in Iowa at about 1,100 pods per three by three feet. In Minnesota, their yield came in very, very high with a 195.08 bushels per acre up sharply from 2019 when they pegged it at just a 170 bushel per acre. Their soybeans also looked pretty healthy coming in at a just over a thousand pods per that three by three foot square. So looking like we're going to have some pretty strong yields out there, especially if you put stock in those pro farmer crop tours. But this was really what the markets were watching this week to see, hey, is Iowa as bad as people are thinking? Is this crop going to be harvested? Is the damage that's done enough to bring down the yield? And it appears that it's not going to be at least at this time. And so we're going to be watching here for harvest to see once that hits, all right, what yields are actually coming out of the fields here, especially in the state of Iowa? Well, Delaney, I'm super excited to have Ted on the podcast on Monday to see what he has to say about uh, Pro Farmer Crop Tour. But other than that, I am all out of news. What do you say we hop into the markets? Let's do that. And I wanted to, before we hop into the markets, just update our listeners on one final market piece of information. Of course, the cattle on feed report came out today. And as of August 1st, cattle on feed were at 101%. The trade estimated about 100.8%, so a little higher than what the trade was anticipating. Placed on feed, however, we saw 111%. And so again, that was way higher than what the trade range was expecting. Marketing during the month of July came in at a 99.4%. So that was pretty in line with the trades estimates. And of course, that came out after the close of the markets today. So we will watch what the overnight does Sunday night into Monday morning to see how the markets react to this news. But taking a look at the markets for today, the corn market breathed a slight sigh of relief today with the September contract finishing 
going up just two and a half cents to close at 3.27 even the December, up a penny and a quarter to close at 3.40 and a half. Soybeans pulled back just slightly on the day with a September contract down two and a quarter cent to close at nine dollars and three quarters cent. The November down just a half a cent to close at nine oh four and three quarters. Wheat continues its upward trend here as the September contract pegged up seven and a quarter cent to close at five twenty-seven and a quarter. The December up six and a half cents to close at five thirty-five flat. In the livestock pits, the live cattle contract August closed down a dollar twenty-two to close at one oh five eighty. The October shed a dollar twenty-two and a half to close at one oh eight fifty-five. In the feeder cattle pits, the August contract shed fifty cents on the day to close at one forty-two ninety-two and a half. The September contract down ninety-seven and a half cents to close at one forty-four eighty-five. In the lean hog pits, the October contract down ninety-two and a half cents to close at fifty-four fifty-two. Excuse me, fifty-four twenty-five, and in the December pits, they lost forty cents on the day to close at fifty-five forty-five. Rounding out our markets with the Dairy Class Three milk futures, the August unchanged on the day to close at nineteen sixty. The September up nine cents on the day to close at fifteen thirteen. Ashton, without further ado, why don't you tell us who we'll be talking to for today's interview? Today, we are talking to the Manager of State Government Relations for Michigan Farm Bureau, Rob Anderson. Today on the podcast, we have Rob Anderson, who is the Manager of State Government Relations for Michigan Farm Bureau. Rob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the interview, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis there at Michigan Farm Bureau? Yeah, sure Three, sure thing. I'm, uh, I manage our statewide lobbying efforts on behalf of Michigan Farm Bureau. Uh, we have a team of four individuals who focus our efforts here at our state capital in Lansing. And we, we actually uh, carry out the lobbying efforts on behalf of over 42,000 farm families in Michigan. We have a robust uh, process uh, to develop our policy positions on a variety of issues from um, hardcore agriculture issues to transportation, to energy, to taxation, uh, and everything in between. So we take those policy positions that our members develop uh, and we do that on an annual basis where it's actually farmers at the grassroots level uh, you know, telling us, uh, making sure we're, we're on track with the things that they want us to advocate for on their behalf. So we work in conjunction with state legislators and state regulators to, uh, you know, share agriculture's perspective and, you know, hopefully provide them with the input and the resources that they need to make decisions that are, you know, in the best interest of Michigan agriculture. Well, Rob, it sounds like a very interesting job, but I wanted to talk more about the pushback on this new emergency order that was issued by Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services concerning COVID-19 testing. So can you just tell me what that order really entails and what that's about? Yeah, sure thing. So on August 3rd, um, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services issued a public health order. And what this order does is it requires farm workers in certain segments of the agriculture industry to undergo a mandatory test for COVID-19. Now, this is different than uh, screening, which uh, a lot of people have to do when they when they go into work where they get a temperature scan 
and they're asked some questions about symptoms. And, and obviously, if they if they have any of those, then they're asked to, you know, go home and rest and quarantine and make sure that they're safe. But what we're talking about here is an actual uh, requirement that they undergo a test. Um, and until the workers pass uh, or actually go through and undertake this test, what this order says is that they are not allowed to work and they are not allowed to uh, interact with other individuals who are uh, who are on the farm or or in their area until they actually go through and undertake this test. So they would then have to go into quarantine housing. If they're already um, working on the farm, that means that they would have to have to um, have their their living arrangements adjusted. And these may are very likely people who don't have any symptoms of COVID. Um, and are frankly just concerned that they are being singled out to take this test because as the order lays out, it speaks to um, communities in agriculture that are highly um, likely to be Hispanic or Latino in their in their um, racial background. So um, the, the targeted areas of agriculture that are in the order are areas that are, you know, well in estimates, well above 90 plus percent are Latino or Hispanic. Hispanic workers, and the concern is that um, by by singling out those groups, that this is something that, frankly, is a uh, it's a constitutional issue because you're, you know, the equal protection clause to the Constitution says you can't single out groups based on their racial background, um, and we think that that's what this order uh, does. And even though it's um, it's it well intended, and and we understand that states are doing everything they can do. Uh, you know, to sort of battle COVID-19 and, and implement things that are, are going to be helpful. Um, the one thing that states can't do is they can't do things that violate individual civil rights and, um, and their rights under the Equal Protection Clause. So that is our concern is that this unfairly singles out Latino agricultural workers. And it, again, we are, we fully understand that the state is free to battle COVID-19. But um, we just think that they need to do it in a way that is not racially profiling one group of people. Absolutely, Rob. And where exactly are these tests coming from? Are these farm workers or employees having to find their own way to get tested for COVID-19? Or are their employers actually having the resources provided to test them for COVID? It's a great question. And uh, and I'm glad you asked. The, the order speaks to the requirement of an employer to test workers before they're able to come to work. So in, in many or most cases, what is happening is that farmers are working either with, with local healthcare systems or they've actually um, reached out to the, to the state for assistance in complying with this testing. And so there's a variety of different mechanisms, but you, as you can probably imagine, you know, agriculture in Michigan is is pretty uh, varied in terms of um, its its uh, location, a farm's location to to some of these potential testing sites, um, and are the resources available to have testing come on site if that's where they need to be. So, um, the impetus is on the employer to make sure that the test is completed prior to allowing the individual to work, and that's that's the critical piece here is that these folks are are not going to be able to go to work. And, and earn a paycheck until they actually have this COVID test done. So, you know, what farmers are doing is they're trying to, to figure out how to make that happen. In areas, some areas of our state, you know, uh, our farms may be uh, well into an hour away from facilities that can handle this. So 
Uh, you know, very certainly there are some logistical challenges, but again, when you get right down to it, the issue at hand is the fact that really no other similarly situated worker that we can identify in the state is required to undergo a COVID-19 test in order to be able to work. We have other industries. There's the, uh, there's the, uh, nursing home facility and workers there. Um, they have had, um, there's been a lot of attention on that. And so they have a, a requirement to undergo a test in order to be able to work with patients. But if a worker is concerned about that and they don't want to submit to a COVID test because they're not symptomatic and they would just, they would just prefer not to have that invasive procedure done, they can still work. They just can't work with patients. This order is different. This order says that in order for an individual to work and, and earn that paycheck. And again, this is the time of year when agriculture is the, the busiest in Michigan in terms of um, workers, um, ability to earn income. And again, this is, this is prime time because um, many of them earn a lot of their annual, annual income this time of year. And so to actually put them on the sidelines because they are concerned about having to take a test when no one else, you know, in, as far as we can see is required to do that. The workers themselves have stepped forward and said, we're concerned about this. This is a problem. We don't want to submit to this test because we're not symptomatic and, and, you know, no one else has to do this. So that's kind of where we are with, uh, with the, uh, the testing for farms is that they're doing the best they can, but the pushback from the workers is, is the major concern. They may very well. And we've actually heard anecdotally that some workers have decided that rather than submit to the test, that they're just going to leave the farm and they're going to go work either in other States where the, where the testing is not required, or they're going to go seek work in other industries that don't have this requirement. It's very interesting stuff, and it's really exciting. I, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but I'm very interested in, in hearing about this and what employees are thinking, what employers are thinking. And so that being said, what kind of operations are included in this order, and how can people know if their farm or if their agriculture service actually is included in that order? Yeah, again, um, Glad you asked that question. And this, this again, I think in part gets to the, to the heart of, of kind of the concern. So um, what the order specifies is that, first of all, um, workers who are uh, farm workers who are, let me back up, um, employers who have housing that they provide to workers who may come uh, and work on the farm on a seasonal basis, those farms automatically need, need to um, require all workers to undergo this test. So that's really the first, the first uh, marker is that if you, if you have migrant housing, your workers have to get tested. After that, it speaks to workers who uh, are on farms that have 20 or more employees in certain industries. Those workers also have to submit uh, their employees to testing. And they, they lay out those different um, areas of agriculture, including um, anyone who employ uh, migrant agriculture workers that don't live on site, um, including foreign guest workers that come in and are largely his, um, Latino in, in their racial background, um, anyone who employs seasonal agriculture workers, um, owners and operators of meat, poultry, and egg processing plants, uh, and then any owners of greenhouses. So those categories, if they have 20 or more employees, are required to, to require workers to undergo uh, testing in order to be able to work. And ironically, these are these 
areas that are specifically uh, laid out in here are areas of the agriculture industry in Michigan where we have that high percentage of Latino workers. So again, our concern is that by design, this is meant to uh, focus on you know this racial group of people and require them to submit to testing that other group we can find has to do. And we find that problematic because you, you just you just can't do that under the Constitution. Well, Rob, I just have one last question before I let you go. Where can people find more information about what's going on with this order? And where can we find you guys at on social media so we can follow along with what's going on at Michigan Farm Bureau? Yeah, sure thing. Um, the easiest way to, to track what, what Michigan Farm Bureau is doing um, is on our website, michfb.com. And on that uh, website, we have links to our, our farm news publication, which contains um, a lot of ongoing articles and information about a variety of different issues uh, related to COVID-19, but, but also uh, related to other things, including this public health order. So that's probably the best way to connect with Michigan Farm Bureau. And the state of Michigan website is, uh, is a good resource for other um, information related to this. Um, including this public health order that that looks at our, our migrant and seasonal workers. Well, again, folks, that was Rob Anderson, Manager of State Government Relations for Michigan Farm Bureau. Thanks again, Rob, for coming on today. It was very interesting to see what's going on with this order and what Michigan Farm Bureau is doing. Thank you, Ashton. I appreciate the, the time together very much. Again, a big thank you to Rob for coming on the podcast today. And it was certainly interesting to hear about this pushback on the new emergency order by Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services about COVID-19 testing on farms and agricultural operations. And I believe that the date for them to have a compliance plan, we didn't really talk about that in the interview, of course, but they were supposed to have a compliance plan done by August 24th, or at least have the... um, the testing to be done by August 24th. So uh, we shall kind of see what happens and I'll try and follow up with that next week on the podcast. Fantastic. Thank you, Ashton. We'll certainly appreciate that. And folks, you can catch us next week on the podcast. We'll be back on Monday to chat markets. Find us on Ag News Daily. Or find us at agnewsdaily.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.